the world gets a whole lot easier when you really do believe in your product and it is apparent that other people do too. With her career spanning computer hardware, teddy bears, and now women's cycling, serial entrepreneur and mid-kid Elizabeth Robert joins Start Here to share her journey and how she identifies and manages business opportunities. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Awesome. Liz, uh, you now run and own Terry Cycles Bicycling here in Burlington. How, how did that come about? It seems like you're back in the startup business. Well, after I left Vermont Teddy Bear, I had aspirations of being a private investor in Vermont. I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to go back into day-to-day uh, -day operations um, after having you know, done that for many, many years, including 15 uh, at Vermont Teddy Bear. But um, so I went out and I had the opportunity to sort of scour the Vermont landscape. I worked with my friend Rick Fritz, who's uh, another colleague of mine on the Middlebury College board, who's also been active as a private investor here in Vermont. And uh, so we jointly went about um, looking at various alternatives and um, sort of out of the blue one day, uh, got a call from an investment banker in uh, Massachusetts. And coincidentally, uh, within a couple days thereafter, a call from a marketing consultant that I had worked with in, uh, at Vermont Teddy Bear, that there was this little company in Rochester, New York that was for sale. And uh, my first inclination was to say no, because it's Rochester, New York, and my focus was on Vermont. Uh, but after uh, some convincing conversations with the investment banker, uh, who suggested that the company could be moved, and realizing that there might be an opportunity not only to own, invest and own the company, but also to become involved in day-to-day -day operations, um, I began to consider it more seriously. And even after three months of sort of being in this la-la land, thinking I was gonna be a private investor, even just after three months, I was very antsy to get back into something a little more active. Sort of the and call of the wild to be an operator yes, again? Yes, right? exactly. There was something that just wasn't ready to let go of that. And so um, it was just a matter of weeks before I had essentially made up my mind that this was what I was going to do. So I think I received the book from the investment banker in the beginning of January. By the middle of March, I had signed a letter of intent and uh, put together the financing and the wherewithal to be able to do this. And on the 30th of April, actually officially became the owner and CEO of Terry Bicycles. Great. Uh, so what, I what, then... What year is that? This was 2009. 2009. Great timing then, huh? Right. Yes, definitely great timing. Um, certainly good economics uh, in terms of... Uh, the value proposition, you know, the value that I bought the company for. However, on the other side of it, definitely a company that had been uh, hit hard um, during the financial crisis and the ensuing recession. Uh, it's a catalog company primarily, mm -hmm. and catalog companies and direct-to-consumer retail like that all got hammered particularly hard during the, the recession. Uh, it's what happened to Vermont Teddy Bear as well. So, um, yes, I got a good deal, but I also got 
uh, I got what I paid for. Yes. Liz, if you could just give us kind of a snapshot, what did Terry look like when you got there in 2009 and you sat down, you pulled your sleeves up, what were you working with? Well, um, I, my first reaction is to compare it to what I found at Vermont Teddy Bear when I arrived <laughs> back in 1995. At Vermont Teddy Bear back in 1995, um, there was a lot of bleeding, uh, you know, financial bleeding going on. Um, there were, you know, visions of cash being thrown out the loading dock in the back of the building and the business being in what we called undeclared Chapter 11. And all of that was pretty nearly true, even uh, Vermont Teddy Bear being a public company. But it had a lot of critical mass. It did have 300 employees. It did have $16 million in sales. And so there was a lot of juice to squeeze. There was a lot of room to maneuver, if, if, if you will. Terry, on the other hand, had been run by two women who were as frugal as frugal can be and tight as tight could be when it came to their finances. And so as I uh, looked at the two um, partners, founding partners, and you know, declared my uh, final decision to go forward with this, I looked at them and I said, you know, the difference here is there's not a lot of runway. There is, you guys have run this thing, so there is not a lot of juice to squeeze. There is really virtually no room for error. And so it was with a lot more trepidation that I stepped into this turnaround than uh, I had back in 1995 when I stepped into Vermont Teddy Bear. And also, one last point is, coming into Terry, I had a lot to lose. I had, you know, certainly been very successful as a turnaround artist and a, you know, a, a, a leader of a growth business for... Uh, then approaching 15 years, and to think that I had to sort of take uh, on this crapshoot and put my reputation at stake uh, along with my money was not an easy thing to do. So I took a deep breath and uh, I took the plunge and started out by commuting uh, to Rochester. So for the first 10 months, I actually left every Monday morning <laughs> my house in Charlotte at 4 o'clock in the morning to arrive in Rochester at 8.30 and then drove home Friday afternoons, usually leaving around four or five o'clock at night and getting home at 10 o'clock at night. So um, it was a challenge. Wow. And how many people were working there at the time? There were about 20 people oh, 20. as where, compared where to the 300. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are actually at about uh, anywhere between 16 and 20, d depending on the time of year. But we are 16 full-time permanent employees at Terry Bicycles right now. Great. And right here at the Karma Birdhouse still? We are at the Karma Birdhouse. That's where our creative and marketing and administrative departments are. Our customer service and our warehouse, pick, pack, and ship operation, are down at Ambrose Place, which is uh, not too far away from Burton. So we're about a mile and a half apart, uh, but it, it works. And we've got the bike path uh, to mm -hmm. unite us, and it's a good excuse to get our employees riding bikes uh, during the day to go back and forth between. I've, I've done ask, were you a cyclist before? Terry came along, or, or did you it's feel like you had to dive in and, and, and understand the customer? Well, of course, I've always been an athlete um, and very active with sailing and skiing being sort of my primary outdoor adult passions. But back in um, about 2005 or so, so about three years before I left Vermont Teddy Bear, I decided to 
take up cycling again. You know, the same old thing, you're getting old, your knees are not so good, and cycling's a great alternative. So I bought my first road bike uh, since I had been I had one in college, and uh, I started riding to work. And I thought I, you know, had really risen to the level of cycling excellence when I was commuting three and a half miles from my house in Charlotte to Teddy Bear. And I was doing it virtually every day in the summertime and thinking, wow, you know, I'm really, this is, this is an accomplishment. And uh, now I'm actually riding 30 miles round trip, 15 miles in and 15 miles out, at least, you know, two, three days a week during the summertime uh, as I come in here to Terry to, to work. Is that, does that give you a little bit more authenticity with your team or your or your, your your retailers that carry your product? And maybe it might be helpful just to explain how Terry sells direct to consumer or through some other retailers, because you know constantly entrepreneurs are trying to figure out what their channel strategy should right. be. So Terry was quite different uh, from all my prior experiences in that it. Uh, very multi-channel. We had a direct-to-consumer uh, channel that's catalog and web primarily, and then we have um, a retail, a wholesale to, to retail channel as well. So large retailers such as REI, L.L. Bean, Backcountry, and then a whole host of independent bike shops or independent outdoor retailers. Um, so that's a, a a very different dimension, and I had very little experience in the wholesale to retail uh, side of things, the B2B side of business. Um, so that, that definitely was, um, was different and, and very challenging, but I've learned that having both or, you know, having both uh, actually while making the business much more complex and particularly for our size, it also provides a much greater foundation for stability. So when one thing is working really well, maybe it buffers the fact that things aren't all firing um, in the other channel. And do you have internal sales or do you use independent agents or a blend? We uh, have a blend, but I would say that most of what actually happens is uh, a result of our inside sales uh, activity as opposed to independent reps. Yeah. That's uh, sort of on the decline generally in our industry, I think. Um, I was wondering, too, um, your experience at particularly Vermont Teddy Bear that I know of about talking about late Jack and the customer persona that, that you identified. Um, could you just talk a little bit about how firms, when they're maybe just, they might have some scale in sales, but as they start to maybe put a little bit more uh, effort into growing their business, you know, what, what tools or what, what habits or practices might they use to sort of really know who their customer is so that their, their marketing messages, their customer service, their product development are aligned toward that, that, that customer or customers? Well, you know, I think the world has definitely changed a lot since I was at Vermont Teddy Bear. And in those days, we spent a lot of time actually talking to our customers. Of course, we had we Not were tweeting, all right? we were all direct to consumer, um, all about direct to consumer at Vermont Teddy Bear, and we spent a lot of time on the phone. Uh, you know, the back in the day when I was first there, you know, very it was it was 1997 that we took our first internet order, and I started in 1995, and the percentage of orders that came in via the phone through most of my tenure was still a majority coming in via the phone. 
so we were on the phone with our customers all the time, and we spent a lot of time with our customer service team understanding what they were telling us, what their needs and wants were. In addition to that, uh, we did a lot of focus groups, again, actually talking to people. Today, it's, it's quite different. I mean, we still try our best to talk to people, and we have everything from our tent sale to um, events and charity rides that we participate in and potentially co-sponsor or whatnot. So we do still have a chance to talk to people. But much more of it, uh, the interaction and engagement that we experience with our customers is behind the veil. It's behind the veil of the computer or the smartphone. And I think that just leads to a very different uh, relationship and it, it presents a very different challenge in terms of really understanding what they are uh, about and what their needs and wants are. I don't think they always tell you the same thing as they you know, will act on transactionally. And so it's become much more about data and data analysis. And uh, there are all these incredible ways now of uh, recognizing people who come to your website and actually being able to track them back and associate them with names and addresses and then compare them to like-minded people either on Facebook or in catalog cooperative databases. It's a, it's a very different uh, approach to, uh, as I said, under, trying to understand the customer. And frankly, I don't think it's any better. And, uh, but it's, you know, it, it, is, it is the medium in which you have to do that now, and so you do the best you can. Liz, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, after you were, you were doing these crazy commutes to Rochester and um, finally making that transition and, and establishing Terry back into Burlington, Vermont. Um, what was that like, you know, I guess uh, in terms of culture, but also, you know, the legality behind it? You know, what were the biggest challenges there and, and kind of how long was that transition? I'm sure it wasn't easy. Right. Well, of course, uh, I went in to the acquisition uh, with all my cards on the table telling the employees in Rochester that I was buying this business, getting to know it, but that I was moving it to Burlington. And so that's a very difficult uh, dynamic to set up when you're first trying to understand how to run a business. But I think because I was really transparent and very honest with these people, um, I also set up uh, a stay bonus program. So, you know, most of the people agreed to stay for a certain period of time uh, in, a, in exchange for a bonus at the end. We also made a, a big effort to help people find uh, other, other jobs. So, you know, while challenging, it, it, it did work. Um, it was a culture that was sort of, uh, I'd say, down in its tone, uh, partly because the founder uh, was really ready to retire and, you know, no longer had the energy to run the business. And that's always a sort of a depressing dynamic. Um, it was down because, you know, the company was going through this transition and then moving. Um, and I think it was also down because of the, you know, la the lingering effects of the recession and the fact that the financial performance of the company had really been um, in the doldrums for an extended period of time. 
When I moved the company to Burlington, obviously there were a lot of challenges associated with that, building a whole new organization. Now, there were four people who came with me. Um, and there were three people, actually, no, there were three people who came with me, and there were four people who agreed to stay on but work from Rochester. Three of the four from Rochester are actually still with the company, which is wow. great. So we've actually developed a segment of our organization. We work remotely with them. We Skype all the time. It's actually remarkable how it works. And it's probably not unlike how many of the people here at VSET are interacting with their companies. You know, it's all, uh, it's all digital. Um, obviously, when you hire a bunch of new people to come into an organization, it's not going to all work out um, as planned. And we did, hire, we did make a couple of big mistakes and had to work through the transition of people coming in and out uh, to finally find the right team and have it gel. And I would say that at this point, we've got a great team, that there's been a lot of stability and, and people have really embraced the culture. I'll, another factor uh, to keep in mind when you move a business, it's not all bad when you have a company where the tone is down and there is a sort of a cultural uh, fabric that has been sort of imbibed by this downness for some period of time. You clear the slate, you clear the deck, and you create a whole new vibe and a whole new culture as a result of bringing in a whole bunch of new people. It's like a, a white a, a white slate, a white board. A rebirth. Yeah, a rebirth. And um, so there's some negatives to, to doing that. There There's also that, that very much that positive. And you get to sort of nurture them and grow the company and the culture and set the tone and have it take hold much more easily than if you're trying to actually change somebody into that more positive uh, vein. On the team element here, what, uh, what, what characteristics do you really like to see in, in an applicant wanting to work for you? And, and which ones are just warning signs? Do you, do you have any that have, over the years through Air Mouse and Vermont Teddy Bear and now with Terry that just might uh, might help those out there with resumes or career change in mind better position themselves? You know, I think it's about how badly do you, the applicant, want the job. And, and really trying to find ways to test that level of energy and commitment to their uh, their own personal careers, but also their ability to be committed to an organization and a mission. Um, I think in this day and age, uh, the millennials get a bit of a bad rap for being a bit about themselves and maybe not so much about, I'm going to be employed to do the best for the company. Um, I think a lot of that is probably a function of how difficult it was for them to find employment when they first graduated mm -hmm. from college. It was tough. Um, but the great thing about, you know, this generation is there, you know, when you tap into it, there is tremendous uh, positive energy and passion and commitment. And it, so I think it, the, the most important thing uh, as, a, as an employer to think about is making sure you're really finding those people, the ones who, who really want to come in and make a difference. Um, another point that, uh, you know, as an applicant, um, be careful about, you know, how much you, what, when you ask questions, how much of it is about me, 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 and, you know, what are the benefits, and, and what are, you know, what are my opportunities, and be, be persistent in wanting to understand, you know, what 
is the opportunity for the company and how can I contribute to that? Uh, it's a big, it makes a big difference uh, in an interview when you're the potential employer to hear those different, different types of conversations. Um, so uh, I think, you know, overall, in, in bringing this new team together, um, I think I got it right maybe 75% of the time, mm -hmm. but not 100% of the time. So tell us about that that twenty five. What what is the what are you avoiding? What's what's the big mistake? What's the thing that you know? Especially I think startups in Vermont they have to start small and you know they're scared to build their team because it's a lot of cost involved and a lot of time and energy. But also um, you know people could look great on paper and interview well and then kind of not work out. So kind of what's your advice about you know avoiding those mistakes? I guess. Um, again, I think it's about asking the right questions during the interview, but, and, and really probing for resilience. You know, I think res resilience or lack of resilience, particularly in a small startup enterprise, you need resilience on the part of employees. And you can't have people who are going to be scared when they overhear conversations about how are we going to make payroll. Um, so asking questions about their experience. And, it, you know, of course, if you're interviewing young people who are perhaps just coming out of college, you have to ask them questions that relate to their, uh, their life experience, uh, maybe more so than their actual career or work experience. But asking them, you know, what challenges did you have to overcome in your life? And, and you know, how did you do that? Uh, who did you rely on for support? Um, what resources did you tap into, both for your, you know, in terms of inside yourself or externally that were available to you to, to help you overcome some of these challenges, just to test their ability to uh, react positively when encountering um, tough times and, you know, being able to think their way through it as opposed to being reactive and kind of panicky. Uh, so that's, that's definitely probably the most important um, line of, of thinking in an interview to try to parse through and find that 25% who um, may not be uh, suited for this type of an environment. Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing is, again, making sure that the person is truly uh, able to buy into your mission. And I will say that one of the challenges I've had in my organization is finding people who are really committed to cycling. You know, there's uh, and particularly women, to be honest, it's it's um, it's sometimes it's weather related or sometimes it's just safety related. But but trying to find people who are are really willing to put their their energy where their mouth is and actually live up to this commitment to embrace cycling and participate in the events and the. Uh, the rides that, that are geared and focused on getting more women on bikes because that is our mission. Um, so, you know, at times we've just had to put aside uh, the answer to the question, you know, how much do you ride a bike? Well, I ride it once in a while and recreationally. We've had to sort of put it aside because we need that particular expertise uh, in order to, you know, get the job done. 
but at the same time, you know, when times do get tough or there are particular challenges, it's just having that passion for cycling and for our mission also helps to get people through it. It's not just how they how resilient they are as human beings, but it's also the passion they have for what we are doing as a business that helps them to uh, get through the tougher times. Absolutely. Um, in the vein of res- resilience, I think that is kind of a nice segue into my next question, which is, um, you know, obviously you took over Terry, um, but that had been an older company, but it is kind of like a startup in a, in a lot of respects. Um, what advice do you give young entrepreneurs that are just starting out today? If you could kind of talk to them in this early stage when, you know, resiliency is is probably huge, what advice would you give them? Well, of course, that's a that's a huge question because I wouldn't give them just one piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a long laundry list of, the test. of advice. <laughs> yeah, I would say um, first and foremost, you better be real sure that you have a product that you believe in and that you have some uh, concrete evidence other people want to buy, whether that's a product or a service. And the world gets a whole lot easier when you really do believe in your product and it is apparent that other people do too. No question about it. Um, And so initially building your organization too around product. So don't think you're gonna go out and hire some fancy marketing person or uh, you know financial organization, any of that. The first of it all has to happen around the product. And um, I think From there, the next thing I would put out as being important to grapple with is the financial um, proposition. You know, it's, it's, are people going to spend money for this? And if so, how much? And then even from the very beginning, putting together pro formas and projections and trying to map out the reaction to your product in the marketplace to some financial framework. Because the next thing you're gonna have to do in all probability is raise some money and to figure out how to spend money on marketing programs and um, you know, and, and communication. How are you gonna communicate? How are you going to learn more about this customer and find more of these people who apparently do like your product? Um, and so, so Doing that, being able to raise money and then spend it wisely on communicating the value proposition that you have uh, is best done when it's on paper. It is. It gives you something to reference so you don't lose sight of where you're at. You can always kind of come back to, well, am I on track or not? The other thing it does is it, it, it gives you a, a framework for conversation with people outside, whether it's mentors or a potential board or a potential investor. It just gives you a way of, of talking about your, uh, your startup in, 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 that's concrete. It's not just all about the vision. I mean, it's great to talk about the vision, and you have to talk about the vision, but there has to be a framework of reality built around it. Vision and doesn't always meet payroll. That's right. right. And, and so I've, I've found, in, you know, having done this multiple times with various stage companies, 
it's it's incredibly powerful to always frame your vision and the potential for your enterprise around, uh, you know, to frame it with a, a budget, a set of financial projections. You know, the other thing I will say is if you can do that, it gives you one whole hell of a lot more credibility with a whole host of uh, constituents, whether it is potential investors, whether it's employees. It gives employees confidence that you know what you're doing and that you're not just you know, flailing with some vision that will go nowhere. Uh, and it, I think it also gives you a lot more credibility with your customers um, in the fact that you, you know, you, you've, you've built something that's a little more stable. Customers don't just want to buy great product. They also want to buy from organizations that they can believe in. And, you know, if I send it back, they're actually going to be there. And, and uh, if I want to buy another one, they'll actually be a bigger and better one for me the next time. I mean, so from, for all sorts of reasons, I think it's important to build this framework of uh, financial preparation around your, your, your concept, your vision. Yeah, it's the, the backbone. Yeah. Um, you know, through your career, you've had the opportunity, right, at a public company uh, with privately funded uh, investors and then sort of the, the go it alone, I'm going to own it piece. Could you maybe just share some of the pros and cons of having outside investors versus not and, and you know, given a choice, you know, which, which route do you go? Because we, we often have teams come in here not knowing whether they should mortgage the house for the proceeds or go get an angel investor. So, you know, I, it's probably individual, but I'm just, just curious. You, you seem to have done all three or, or four versions probably. Right. In the grand scheme of things, I will tell you that I've always done better and my companies have done better with funds from operations than with funds from external sources and you, from investment sources, and you can chart this at Vermont Teddy Bear. Whenever we were doing it with funds from operation, we were growing 10 to 20 to 40% per year. And whenever we were out there raising money, whether it was in the John Sortino days or even in my early days at Vermont Teddy Bear, and certainly towards the end when we went private, when you bring in a bunch of outside money, for some reason, it just does not um, it just doesn't work as well. Now, to say that that's the ideal, you always manage your business with funds from operations is not realistic in a lot of circumstances. So when you're thinking about a startup, obviously you need money to get started. Um, I think the mistake that young entrepreneurs make is uh, giving up too much of their own equity uh, for the traditional forms of private equity way too soon. Hmm. I, I feel like this whole notion of, you know, preferred stock and convertible debt and all of this kind of thing, the, that uh, financial engineering that, that many organizations, frankly, here in Vermont talk about and embrace as sort of the way of capitalizing young startup companies in the state it's it's not right. It's not. It's too. It's too soon. It's it's little companies need, and I don't care where it comes from. Whether it comes from uh, the fact that you've mortgaged your house and the rest of your life is fairly stable, so you're you know 
you're not at risk of losing everything, um, or whether it's coming from friends and family or an angel investor, the most important part is that it is pure equity. And that there are, you know, there are no strings attached. Because it's so difficult to operate in building a business constantly having to think about the timing of when these puts and calls are going to come into be and when the time for the convertible note of the preferred stock to transition into something else comes due. You never know what the circumstances are going to be. And in that case, you're just playing craps. You're gambling. You really need to be in control of, your, of the development curve of your business and be able to transact its equity at the right time with the right people and be in control of that. And so, especially when people are starting up, I always say, you know, friend and family money, where, uh, and I say, shouldn't say no strings attached, obviously there have to be some perhaps, but where you don't have to time your exit according to some deal that was done five years before. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the perverse conditions around redemption rights yes, exactly. artificial calls and puts are sort of going away, although, I, I, you know, guilty as charged for some of the investments we've participated in here at, at Visa. Uh, you know, our portfolio raised $50 million last year, I mean, $160 million over the last seven years or so. So it's, you know, directionally positive, and it's not always uh, easy or clear, you know, some of those conditions are to try to affect behavior change or uncertainty around first-time right. entrepreneurs, perhaps. And then I think there's another point in the evolution of a company where there's a different decision to be made, and that is, you know, so you're so you're now no longer a startup, but you're you're maybe in the growth phase. Um, in that, and in still the young growth phase. In that situation, again, there's great temptation, and that's probably when you are most attractive to mm-hmm. traditional private equity, is I just see this opportunity. And, and, uh, but I think there, that's another point in the evolution of a business where you have an opportunity to, to make a choice. And you can go to banks. You know, banks are not bad guys. I have done a lot of work with a lot of great banks, and in fact, I relied more on banks and loans from Vita from my friends at NBT uh, to finance the early growth of uh, Terry bringing it to Vermont, as opposed to going out and raising additional capital from investors. And, uh, you know, if you can see your way to positive cash flow, if you're in a mode of positive cash flow and it's really just a working capital problem, I would really encourage people, you know, entrepreneurs to think seriously about bank debt before going back into the uh, private capital, private equity well. I, I think even that... Even when you sign that personal guarantee Even when you send that, yep. you know, even when you sign that personal uh, guarantee. And believe me, I yes, I have done that. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about... Uh, your experiences at Middlebury College. You mentioned earlier you're a trustee down there. Uh, and what, what do you see out of Middlebury that gives you hope for the future, particularly around entrepreneurship? Um, we need a lot of hope for the future right now. I, um, you know, Middlebury is just a really unique uh, institution. And um, it's, 
So every every year, sitting on that uh, stage at graduation and then looking up at the white spire and the blue sky, um, the white spire of Mead Chapel, I, I just feel so grounded. There's something um, very grounding about Middlebury and having had a Middlebury education. But at the same time, there's also something very energizing about the place. It's incredibly rigorous. It's incredibly um, thoughtful. I mean, talk about people who really think hard. And uh, that dynamic is crucial for entrepreneurship. You know, I, I see, I think, a lot of organizations, not necessarily academic organizations, focused on entrepreneurship, where it's maybe more test and fail or throw things against the wall and see what succeeds and, you know, rise above your mistakes and focus on the few things that work. I'm not a big proponent of that. I really think that you have to think hard as an entrepreneur every inch of the way. And there's so little room for mistakes. And making mistakes, you're just spending more money. You're either diluting yourself or you're, uh, you know, diluting other investors. It's wasteful. Mm. And I think being an entrepreneur means you have to be really disciplined and really rigorous in your thinking. And whether it's thinking about who your customer is or thinking about what marketing makes the most sense or how to spend money, uh, or how to organize yourself, to me, that is a big delineator between successful and unsuccessful entrepreneurs. You have to be willing to think hard and think with, out loud with other people. I think that's another factor is building a group of advisors and building just a group of people who will be your sounding board. Um, is, is again, a big delineator between successful and unsuccessful entrepreneurs. It tests your ability to communicate, too, and, again, it, and it nurtures your ability to communicate. Sometimes you just have to talk about what you're doing and wear a shirt of what you're doing and listen to what people are telling you. And learning how to listen, of course, that's also a, a big component of a liberal arts education. And again, why Middlebury um, has has been such a, uh, a vibrant participant in the entrepreneurship uh, community is because I think Middlebury kids, not only um, do they think hard, but they, they really listen. It's a function of liberal arts education. What policy change, small or large, do you think would make Vermont better for entrepreneurs and employers? Boy, that's a, that's a big one. I'm all for Phil Scott's affordability uh, proposition. I, I think um, affordability in this state uh, is critical and uh, making sure that we have a vibrant economy so that young people uh, have opportunity and are able to stay. I, I would say one of the great tragedies of the last, you know, 20 years even in this state is the fact that it has been so difficult for young Vermonters to uh, graduate from our local institutions and actually stay here or be willing to come here. I mean, you came from Boston or from uh, Northeastern, as you said, and uh, there aren't that many of you doing that. There need to be more. Um, in terms of specific, you know, policies, obviously, you know, 
taxation and uh, providing, you know, less of that and more opportunity for disposable income to go back into the economy is is probably the most critical factor. And taxation on business, um, and especially uh, small business, is uh, uh, is a big factor and a big limiter, I think, uh, in terms of companies wanting to be here. A lot of people said to me, what are you thinking, sister? Why are you bringing this company from Rochester, New York, where you know, your health costs as an employer are going to be half what they are in Burlington. Um, your taxes are going to be less. You know, your employees are, you know, they live in far more affordable conditions over there than they will here in Burlington. What are you doing? Well, I do think that Vermont has a lot to offer business um, and, and entrepreneurial businesses in particular because it's such a creative place. And it's got, you know, Vermont itself carries great brand value. Uh, it does attract the right cohort of people with energy and thoughtfulness and vision and passion to be here if they can afford to be here. So there, you know, there is that factor that, in my case, sort of out, the good outweighed the bad. Plus, you know, I just wanted to live here because I love Vermont and I was not going to continue commuting to Rochester, New York. That definitely was a factor. But overall, I would say... Um, you know, there's, there are good things and there are bad things, and we just need to do less of the bad and more of the good to make sure we continue to encourage more startups, but also more business coming into the state. Uh, I think that, you know, startups are great, but many of them don't succeed. Uh, bringing businesses into the state, they have a gr far greater chance of succeeding and generating substantial employment opportunities right out of the gate, as opposed to, you know, moving from, as in my case, maybe 17 to 20 to 30 people in a, you know, shorter period of time than going from one to two to five to six to seven. So um, as a state, I, I think Vermont should be also thinking of programs and incentives to attract more business to actually move back into or move into the state. Thank you. And uh, we have a final question we asked everybody. It's magic wand time. And one thing to change locally in Vermont, what would it be? One thing to change locally in, locally in Vermont. Um, well, it's funny you should ask that because it's not unlike my thinking about what just happened in this presidential election. I think that there is a liberal elitism that is gaining hold in this state. Just like this elitist liberalism may have been the what undermined the uh, outcome so many here in Vermont had hoped for in our national election. Uh, whether it's you know, the not-in-my-backyard syndrome, uh, environmental consequence, or uh, perhaps a little bit overindulgent sense of political correctness. Uh, I think we have to take a hard look at our own navels mm -hmm. and think about what that means, uh, not just politically, but in terms of having a balanced society where 
All kinds of people do all kinds of different things to create a vibrant, generous economy. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This podcast has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. You can follow us on Twitter at VSET. And as always, thanks for listening. Let's get back to work.